I'm Brian Shreve, and this is On the Grid with MPS, a podcast where we'll explore all things related to the utility industry. Through conversation, we hope to provide unique perspective into the way our business operates from day to day. Afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, we're back again with another episode of On the Grid with MPS. Uh, I am your host, Brian Shreve, and uh, today I am joined by two guests. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm John McMillan, and I'm the new marketing director here at McLean. And my name is Nick Wisnitzer. I'm a marketing coordinator for McLean Power Systems. Awesome. And we really appreciate you guys being here. Before we get started, we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to start trying to take a little bit of a journey on the um, electric grid. And as we go along, we'll be focusing on some specific products as we highlight. But for the most part, I think this first episode will be a general update, but we will let anybody who wants to ask questions. But before we get started, I do want to just say, if you do listen to this podcast, please recommend it to your friends, like it, subscribe to it, so that other people who might be interested in this topic can find it as well. So I kind of want to give some background to how we got started here. Uh, Nick's been here about a year. He started as our intern, and I know I've been here about five or six months. Uh, And neither of us are engineers, especially electrical engineers, or come from the utility background. So we have a lot of questions on how things work, why they work, and why we do what we do. So Brian has been very gracious to answer all of our hopefully not too dumb questions. And we think this will be a great podcast episode to give people a introduction and understanding of how our transmission and distribution works. So for today, we're going to split it up into a quick understanding of how electricity works and go from there to power generation and transmission. So welcome to Transmission 101. As a disclaimer, I too am not an electrical engineer, (laughs) just a neurosurgeon by trade, but humbly, I'd say that. Just kidding. So, Brian, power is generated. Uh, We have power plants, whether they be coal or solar or nuclear, and power is generated. Where do we go from there? Yeah, so it's a good question, John, and I think it's probably best to just take a quick step back and uh, just not to get too deep into terminology, but there is a couple of terms that I think will help with our journey. One of those is voltage, which is the measure or the pressure of the force pushing the current. And that's going to be important because everything that we talk about between distribution and transmission is voltage differences. So uh, basically, the power gets generated and the, the benefits of alternating current is that you can change the voltage on alternating current. So depending on whatever voltage it's generated at, let's call it just 15 kV for the sake of conversation, is going to then go to a step-up transformer which will be right outside of the power plant, which has their own uh, switch yard. So the step-up transformer right side of the power plant is going to set that voltage up to something like 230 kV. So that's 230,000 volts from 15,000 volts. To put that in perspective, how much kV do we use in our house on a daily basis? So uh, in regards to the home voltage, basically you have uh, two hot wires in a neutral. Each of the hot wires are 120 volts, but a lot of your major appliances run on 240 volts. So when you use uh, both of your 120 volt wires, that makes it 240 volts. So 
Um, that's why you'll see the larger plugs for like your refrigerator and your dryer. But that's part of the journey. So, um, you know, getting from uh, the generation station all the way to your house. The one thing that I think is pretty cool that uh, I don't think a lot of people understand is there's no good way to store energy. You have batteries, but to this point, even with your electric vehicles, storage just hasn't been something that has been giant leaps in technological advances, even though they are getting better. But for our sake, whenever we flip the light switch at our house, you are basically accessing power on demand. So the light bulb that turns on in your house, the power was generated right within that same millisecond as you are using it. So the first question I have is why step it up? I mean, why not generate it at the level it's needed? It seems to be an extra step. So it's a good question. The reason that we step it up is because a lot of people use the comparison of water. So when you're talking about voltage, you're talking about the force that pushes the current. So if you're trying to transmit, which is transmission, transmit electrons a long distance, you need a lot of force to do that. So if you imagine using your standard garden hose and you, know, you turn on your faucet just a little bit there and it dribbles out, let's say you're trying to water the flower in the backyard, there's not, if you just keep the hose just the way it is and you don't make it smaller, you're not gonna get very far with your water, right? But if you turn up the pressure on the water to full force, that's what's gonna generate amount of water to be able to go further. So that's the same thing that happens in a transmission line. They step up the volts because that pushes the pressure to a much higher level to get down the system towards wherever it's going. Interesting. So as we look at how massive our country is, are there kind of challenges with taking power from the plant to kind of more rural areas? Absolutely. Up until FDR's administration, there was a lot of rural areas that still didn't have electricity, but through some of his government programs, the Rural Electrification Act, REA, that was a government-funded program to bring electricity to rural areas. But in general, the electric grid is really broken up into an east grid, a west grid, and a Texas grid. There's also a grid that serves Canada as well. Uh, that has a little bit of, of U.S. play in it. But again, without going too deep into the details there, because honestly, I wouldn't even understand it myself. John, I don't, I don't know a lot of the processes that happen at the power station, but they all cooperate with each other within the grid to make sure that you're getting the demand that you need throughout the day. Okay, great. So we've got the generation, we've got the power, and now it's up in the lines. Where do we go from there? So when you're talking about transmission, again, if you want to think about it like a roadway system, the transmission is like the highway system that we have in America. So transmission is uh, what we're going to use to transfer power along large distances. Uh, you're going to have a larger conductor to be able to carry more current plus higher voltage to be able to push that current further. And you do need a structure in place, much like a highway, to, to get that power to where it needs to be. So you're sending power up the lines. These conductors are strung out many miles, but they're strung out in segments. Um, you're not going to usually get like extremely long runs with lines, so you'll end up seeing a lot of different hardware and stuff along the way to, to bring the conductor together. 
And you also have to have something to hold it up. So if you were ever driving along and you see those giant steel towers on the side of the road with cables coming off of them, those are your transmission towers. You know, I've always found it interesting. They, they're, they're kind of far off and things look small, even on the tall towers. And when I first saw my conductor, I realized how heavy and thick it was. That's a lot of weight, which I'm assuming is really needed to, to transmit that. But what kind of really physical and natural elements come into play and, and how do we mitigate that? So there's two sides of engineering that come into play when you're talking about uh, line design. One is the electrical engineering side and the other is mechanical. So all of the power lines have a mechanical load on them as well, which is that does go into some of the stuff that MPS plays in. So your transmission towers, usually the tower wouldn't, wouldn't end up being your weakest point. So your transmission towers come in uh, wood, not as often now. Um, it's a lattice. Lattice is probably the more popular uh, for a lot of uh, what you see along the highway. And the reason is it's, it's sort of like uh, Build-A-Blocks. Uh, the last, lattice tower comes in kits that you can put together uh, on the spot. So you're not carrying around. The other one is uh, spun concrete. So spun concrete poles are extremely heavy uh, and cost prohibitive to, trans to transport. So you'll see them in some areas where a lattice won't work, but that's your basic fundamental building block for what you're going to hang off of it. So when you look at that, those are going to be rated pretty high in, this, in their strength rating as to how much that they can stand. If you just were to, you know, throw a line across the top of a tower, they're built to withstand a lot of force. So now you've got hardware that you use to attach to the tower, which is what holds the conductor up, and your hardware is going to be rated to a certain uh, level of force as well. And depending on the stressors that the engineers themselves have worked out, that's what uh, your, your hardware ratings have to be. Interesting. So there's, there's certainly structural challenges there. Can you tell me some of the electrical challenges as well? Sure, so all in all, the, the purpose of any electric system is to keep the uh, current flowing in the wires. Naturally, as one of the laws of nature, or properties of nature, uh, electricity wants to go to ground. So it's gonna find the quickest way to ground that it can. So it's extremely important that the conductor route is the route of least resistance. So you hear the term flashover sometimes. Usually what happens when you have a flashover is that the current becomes either so high that the particular hardware was not designed to keep it that far away from, say, the tower, or maybe something in, in the design, maybe a piece of hardware swings in the wind and the current jumps from the line to the tower because, like I said, it, it's, its objective is to go to ground. So. Really, it's just a balancing act. There's a lot of math that comes into play to keep it from, uh, from doing that, from going to ground and flowing to where you want it to go. One of the things I learned about in my first couple of weeks here were corona rings, and I thought that was fascinating. Can you share to our audience kind of what that does? Sure. So corona rings go on insulators. Take one more step back and talk about insulator for a second. So an insulator is there. It's non-conductive material for the most part. The electrons in insulators are not as free-flowing as they are in metal. So we make insulators here at McLean out of polymers, and we also make them out of toughened glass. So glass and polymer 
or rubber, if you want to call it that, uh, rubber resin are not good conductive materials. So they're there to keep the power flowing through the lines. Uh, what happens with electricity is that whenever there are sharp edges, right angles, uh, stuff like that, the electricity flowing through that actually starts to make a sound, like a buzzing sound. You may have been out there sometimes uh, if there's a big power line over a golf course or something right after a rainstorm. Um, sometimes you can actually hear it. It's kind of that sound of electricity, almost the, the buzzing sound. What a corona ring is designed to do basically spreads out the electric fields to keep the noise down. Also, corona rings um, help prevent wear on the hardware by uh, spreading out that elect electrical field. We mentioned electricity likes sharp objects and uh, it actually can wear down the hardware over time. So uh, corona rings help with that as well. Interesting. Now, Brian, how many um, insulators are in a transmission line? Most of the time you're going to have, it, it depends on the line design, but you'll probably at least see three. It's done in threes, but uh, a lot of times these transmission towers will have two sets of three-phase power, so six insulators okay. would be what you would probably see more often than not. And can you give us a, a scale of how, those, how big those insulators are? That's a good question. Uh, length of insulators vary, obviously, but um, anywhere from an average of seven and a half feet for a 230 kV all the way up to 16 feet on something like 765. Yeah, so down on the ground they look really small, but uh, <laughs> we've built structures all the way up to 730 kV, and I think those insulators were somewhere in the realm of 10 to 12 feet long. Um, so yeah, they're huge. And the hardware that goes along with it is huge as well. Like you mentioned Corona Ring a minute ago. The Corona ring for those same uh, insulators was probably the size of like a large dog crate. Wow, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So can you briefly kind of explain to our audience sheds and how they factor into insulators? So again, we talked about electricity wanting to take the path of least resistance, right? Well, it does have the ability, but it's, it rarely will electricity go through the air. The air is actually a conductor or sorry insulator in and of itself while that's not the, the straight and fast rule obviously we do have arc flashes which we talked about before that's not what electricity wants to do it wants to flow along the line of whatever uh, material it's going through and the reasons why we have insulator shed is because instead of having let's say a four foot long insulator that was shedless that would be four feet of what we call leakage that that would be all that the electricity would have to cover in order to get to ground. So what we do is we add sheds and the electricity literally runs up and down the shed. So it makes it much harder for it to, to short out that way. So to your kind of um, analogy of water, it's like diverting a river when it's flowing too hard. Yeah. So Brian, you mentioned the material of the insulators. Can you give kind of the pros and cons of the different materials and why we offer multiple types? Sure. So from a practical standpoint, you've got two things that you want to take into consideration, and that is availability, and that's cost, and also ease of use. So when you have polymer insulators, you're able to make those within a factory. They go on a fiberglass rod. So again, glass is not a highly conductive material. 
one of the functionalities or the abilities of polymer insulators is that you can make them different lengths. And the shed patterns that you talked about earlier can vary those shed patterns so that you can get different leakage in just a design change. The other type of insulator would be glass. Glass, you're gonna be limited somewhat because each glass bell is only resistant to X kV. Whereas you might need a shorter polymer insulator with a lot of sheds to block out a lot of KV, it might take 40 glass bells uh, and they're heavy. But one of the benefits of glass, especially on high voltage um, systems, is that they maintain their me mechanical integrity uh, whenever there is an outage and it's highly visible. So what happens with toughened glass is uh, whenever you have an arc event or a puncture event, the glass itself will actually shatter and hold. It's almost like safety glass and it's highly visible from the ground, but it holds the integrity of the mechanical in place. So you still, you're, you're not gonna drop your line to the ground because of that. Now on a polymer insulator, it's the same thing mechanically. You're not gonna drop a line from a puncture in a polymer insulator. The difference is if you have a puncture in a polymer insulator, that's not necessarily an easy fix. If you have to replace an insulator, you have to replace the entire insulator. Okay. Whereas with glass, you can go up there and replace just the bell that pops. Those are kind of a couple of different ways to look at it. Interesting. So I've seen some pictures. Can you tell people how these transmissions lines and insulators get installed and get repaired? It seems to be daunting because it's such a massive thing yeah. to work on. So another big shout out to the linemen out there. We're very lineman friendly here at McLean, obviously, and realize, uh, you know, everything that we do on a daily basis is to try to make their lives a little bit easier. But for the most part, what you're going to have to do is in order to make repairs or replacements, you either have to shut the power off or you have to ground the system. So McLean has safety equipment as well, uh, which would take the power from one phase and then would send it to ground before it gets to the section that needs to be repaired. So your line is no longer alive. And then at that point you can, you can do your repairs. There are some people that are, I think to me, it's crazy. It's, it's awesome. I don't, I think it's a, almost a lost art at this point. There are some people that do live line work which maybe you've seen before, which is where they come in with a helicopter and they have on a suit, which is called a Faraday suit. Since there's no path to ground from the helicopter, they have their little, like, it almost looks like Harry Potter's wand. They get the current and the current actually begins to flow through them. Didn't really talk about this, but so high voltage is not, that's not the dangerous side of electricity. Amperage is the, is the dangerous side. So if you have a high voltage line, um, you can still have the electricity flow through you and, and around your body. Uh, the suit being kind of the protective layer that uh, makes you part of the current. So that's also the same reason why birds on a wire don't get fried every time they sit on one is they become part of the current. There's no uh, path to ground in that. But the live line work is obviously a lot more dangerous and requires a very skilled helicopter pilots, which um, interesting fact, a lot of skilled helicopter pilots came back from Vietnam. Think about live line work now it would be more so on the side of, of somebody being able to fly a helicopter that steadily to prevent somebody being hurt. So what are we doing to enable longevity? So we cut down on the times those lines need to be repaired. 
you know, we talked about some of the stuff that you can see from the ground. When you when you go a glass insulator route, you may not necessarily cut down on the times that something has to be repaired, but your major goal is you want to prevent outages. Outages is, is, is really what you're going after. Repair is going to be part of the life of, of any electric system, but outages are, uh, you know, customers start getting very angry. That's why during storm events, you know, we have such an all hands on deck response to that too. It's people are not used to living without power now. All of our products that, that we make come with a set, a set durability in mind, and we have insulators that are still up that are 45 years old. It's hard to put a, an age on things because there's so many factors involved. Climate's a big factor. The stress that's put on the insulator by the line is a factor. As we continue to sort of look into the future, we, we're finding that our polymer designs hold up very well for the long run. Uh, and then again, like I said, the glass is kind of designed to to fail. And when I say designed to fail, I don't mean drop the line, but designed to the cheaper alternative. And it's also easier for me. So when you talked about the polymer insulators and you talked about the different sheds and links, it sounds like we could do custom solutions as needed for various projects. Is that the case? That is the case. So at McLean, we've got two different processes that we use to build insulators. One's molded and one's modular. On our molded line, we're somewhat limited in length, depending on the size of the press. So there's only so much, obviously, area in a mold to build your, your molded insulator. So sometimes we'll steer customers towards a modular solution if they have something particularly special involved. And when it comes to modular, we're really not limited uh, by much of anything. It's highly customizable. You are using paste to put on the sheds individually they'll they'll make their own pattern and then they slide the fiberglass rod through after it's been extruded with the rubber through all of the sheds and then it's a thermal paste that goes on that keeps those sheds in place from there so to use an analogy i guess it would be like building your insulator you're building it from scratch almost versus you know a molded design which you set the fiberglass in pours the rubber in it comes out, set it and forget it almost type thing. And when it comes to extruded, like I said, it's very much built from scratch and, and highly customizable. Okay, good. So I think we've gotten kind of to the end of my initial questions on transmission. And I'm looking forward to next time getting some distribution 101 from you. But last question, what's the future of transmission and how is McLean going to play a role in it? It's a good question. I don't know that anybody can really answer the question of what's the future of electricity overall. One, one thing that I think we can all be fairly certain of is that, you know, unless Tesla was, was right and there's some like uh, top secret recipe somewhere for transmitting electricity through the air, we'll always have the need for conductor to carry the electricity from wherever it's generated to wherever it's needed. So I think when you talk about the future, there's a lot of future changes coming on the generation side, but when it comes to transmission and distribution, you're still gonna need the same infrastructure in place. Interesting. What about the load on the grid? You know, how much, you know, electric cars and how much power people are using for things now? Is there a way that we'll have to grow transmission in order to accommodate that? Sure, yeah. As population increases, energy consumption increases, 
there has to be uh, more generation capacity generate or uh, <laughs> generation generated um, to come up with more generation capacity and you do see uh, most of the utilities have plans for added generation in their five to ten year plans interesting well thanks for your time I appreciate it thank you Brian yeah thanks y'all appreciate uh, your questions and think of any other questions of course you know how to reach us for more information, please visit our website at www.mclanepower.com. Please also use the contact form to provide feedback and any suggestions for topics that you would like to know more about. Thanks again for listening.